Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. This is a show that I've been looking forward to for quite a long time because we're not going to talk about politics on Political Rewind uh, for just today, although I can't say for certain it won't come into the conversation in some way or another. Uh, Instead, we're continuing our series of conversations that we'll be doing throughout the year with important thought leaders in Georgia and uh, beyond. And, And today... We are joined by, I have to be honest, one of my favorite people uh, in Georgia, the Reverend Dr. Joanna Adams, a longtime Presbyterian minister at churches in Atlanta. She served as the pastor of Morningside uh, Presbyterian Church in the city, Trinity Presbyterian Church. Uh, She served in Chicago at the Fourth Presbyterian Church. And uh, she also was an interim pastor at Atlanta's First Presbyterian Church. Lots of Presbyterian churches in (laughs) Joanna Adams' uh, career. Um, But she's also well-known and so well-respected for being a community leader and someone who has for years worked on building bridges among diverse communities, faith communities, and uh, beyond. I want to talk to her. And by the way, Joanna Adams and I have known each other for a very long time. And so we're going to talk as friends in the sense that we're going to dispense with Reverend Dr. Joanna Adams. I'm going to call you Joanna. And I know you prefer that, actually, don't you? <laughs> I definitely do. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for uh, being here today. I'm really glad that we could have this conversation, Joanna. Um, I want to start by asking you this. I know that you come from a line of uh, faith leaders, ministers, um, and I want you to tell us a little about that. And and as you do, I kind of want to hear you talk about uh, when God first came into your life. If you recall how young you were when God first came into your life. Well, I can't recall it specifically because uh, you know the whole idea of my being uh, came from God, and um, I, I've always had the sense that I was uh, put on the earth to do something that uh, was meaningful. And but I will say that one of my favorite games when I was a child, and I'm I'm talking about you know five and six, I, was, <laughs> I remember lining up my stuffed animals and my dolls on my bed and <laughs> preaching to them. I had a little desk that looked a little bit like a pulpit. And I will say, Bill, that that was, uh, continues to be the most attentive congregation I've ever preached to. <laughs> no 
muscle was moved. No, I was batted. I, I think I, you know, I was born into a, a home where you know we went uh, we went to Sunday school and went to church, and I loved church, I, 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 and I loved Sunday school, and I loved Bible stories, and it was it was just a, a match made in heaven, shall we say? Though people who knew me growing up. Would not have said, now there's a preacher to be, <laughs> because I was not pious at all. Um, first, go back a little bit. Talk about your family's uh, history in, in, um, in the church. Well, my, all my grandfathers on my mother's side, going back at least four or five generations, were all uh, were all ministers uh, in South Georgia, and uh, my mother's father, my grandfather, was someone I never knew personally because he died when mother was thirteen. But I grew up hearing stories about him and his ministry and the kind of person he was. She called him Papa, and we had some hard times in our home with some mental illness. And, and you know, I, I loved the world that mother had grown up with. And he was just one of my heroes. And it never occurred to me that I could grow up and be a minister. The first woman I ever heard pray in public was myself. Honestly, I'd never hmm. heard a woman even say a prayer in public when I was growing up in Mississippi in the 50s. So um, you come out of that tradition of having had grandparents who were in the church. They were Methodists, I think. You became a Presbyterian, right. uh, of course. But I, but I do want to. I want to read something that you wrote uh, because it forms a lot of what I'd like to talk with you about. And I don't know if this was a sermon or something you wrote um, for publication somewhere. You'll you'll know that I assume. You said. There are so many people today who do not have clarity about their religious identity. They were either not raised in the church or raised in the church, but now feel as if they no longer fit in the tradition in which they were brought up. Many have moved away from belief and want to believe again. Many are on a genuine quest for a Christian message that engages the mind as well as the heart for a system of religious meaning that has depth breath, and staying power, and will enable them to ground their lives and engage their society from a perspective of faith and hope. And I think that that is really a very powerful statement about where a lot of people find themselves in the, uh, the uh, search for meaning beyond themselves. And I'm one of those, Joanna. I'm, you know, i was raised both Catholic and Jewish. My father was Catholic. My mother was Jewish. And I actually spent my first 12, 13 years going to Catholic church, making a first communion, uh, all of that, but but ended up uh, uh, following my mother's uh, Judaism, uh, which is what I, I you know, uh, the way I define myself today. But in the middle of all that, I still am not certain where I fit in, in terms of the way I reach out uh, to, to a God. So with that in mind, I do want to go back to when you were younger 
when you were praying as a child, when you were learning about God? How, how did prayer start for you? Just, just very simply, uh, now I lay me down to sleep. <laughs> I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And when I'm going through a rough patch at the ripe old age of, well, I won't even name my age, but it's right. Let's put it that way. Um, I sometimes find myself praying that as I close my eyes and go to sleep. Uh, and it's a, a great prayer of trust. If I should mm. die before I wake, I, I, I pray the Lord my soul to take I, my life and my death are in God's hands. And it, it, I don't know for me, Bill, it was just very intuitive uh, in college. I went through a phase and right after college where I thought I knew everything and I, I really wanted to move away from from what I felt was kind of a closed-minded Christian piety that that soaked the society that I grew up in in, in, in Mississippi. I didn't want that. I knew that that wasn't going to uh, sustain me and I didn't want to be a part. Of, of a faith tradition and then the white church in the south you know the god is in heaven and all's right with the world so you go to church and the the world is not there and um i really had a conversion experience um when i when i had i think my our son sam is now 52 when i was had a sam was elizabeth was three and Sam was a baby, and we had visited a little church in our neighborhood, and a, a member of the church staff called me and said, Joe, people call me Joe then, uh, I understand you're a teacher. We visited the church once, and I said, yes, I, I taught at Grady High School, as a matter of fact, and uh, she said, well, we need you to help out at the Scottsdale Daycare Center for uh poverty-stricken kids in the Scottsdale Mill community. And I laughed and said, you know, I'm teaching Silas Marner. I, I don't know anything about three-year-olds. <laughs> and, and this wonderful person's name was Donna. She said, well, Joe, we need you on Thursday. <laughs> and I found a babysitter and went and sat with those kiddos and lunch was served and the, the kids at my table, uh, the little boy next to me, I uh, said, tell me what's on your plate. You know, tell me what we're eating today. And he did not know the name of green peas. And he lived, we lived in Decatur, then we lived two miles apart. And so it's the church that it was that experience that it's not to me to be a Christian is to follow the way of Christ. Uh, you know, I don't worry about, and I don't want anybody to worry about whether he or she has uh, his or her soul saved. I believe God took care of that as a Christian. I believe that and trust that with all my heart uh, in Christ and his suffering and death and resurrection. Uh, that's where I look to for salvation. But I, I love God. I chose, I chose to accept the gift of faith. And I think faith is a spiritual gift. But you had to be open to it. 
and, and that that was the revelation that came out of that encounter is what you're telling us. That's exactly what I'm telling that that uh, you know God doesn't dwell in the sanctuary. God agrees to meet us there for worship, but by the time that benediction is said, you know the work of God, the the Holy Spirit uh, is out there, and you'll find God's work in places where people suffer and are vulnerable, and where people are hungry, um, where justice is not prevailing, uh, and that's that's the that's the script for my for my life. Um, I want to I want to make sure we point something out. A lot of the conversation that we're going to have today in talking about God, talking about religion, is going to be about Christianity because that's the faith you're grounded in. But one of the most um, admired aspects of your life is how closely you've worked with people of other faith, other faith leaders, other uh, congregations of people who are are, are Jewish, are um, Islamic, um, and, and I think it's important to point that out. And I, I here's something else that at one point I read that you had uh, said you in that regard. You said, the Christian tradition, just as the Jewish tradition, has one central claim, and it's, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In Hebrew, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu, you know that prayer well. So, so we're going to talk about Christianity but there's nothing in our conversation that we can't extrapolate as being part of other people's faith uh, practice as well, right? For sure, um, you know, I'm, we're we're all people of place, and uh, you know, my place in the world has put me on the Christian path. But goodness sake, do I believe with all my heart that all people, people of different faiths and people of no faith are precious, beloved children of God. And none of us is better than any of the other of us. And uh, I, I happen to follow, uh, you know, the path I was born into. But goodness sake, uh, and I don't even know where that came from. I, I remember when I was pastor at Trinity and terrible things happened in the world. And, you know, Alvin Sugarman was my friend. <laughs> so, so I called Alvin and Alvin called me and Joe Roberts and, and, and Clemen El Amin and, you know, and we, 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 we were natural allies because we were, I don't know, we were friends. We shared the same values. And I, I often said when I was in the parish that, you know, my I had more in common with, uh, you know, people like Clement L. I mean, and Alvin Sugarman than I did with 99% of, uh, of Christian clergy who were heading in such a conservative uh, way. And, you know, I just, I just really parted company with, uh, with the right-wing direction of, of the church Plimon, and the conservative I'm, direction. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Plimon El-Amin, uh, one of the leaders uh, in uh, the Muslim community of of Georgia for a very long time, and Alvin Sugarman, uh, the longtime uh, rabbi at the temple, one of 
the uh, uh, most uh, uh, acclaimed, one of the most well-known uh, synagogues in, um, in, in Metro Atlanta. And you all work together on a lot of issues, and I assume that means, among other things, working on how, in your own ways, you came together to talk about civil rights and social justice, yes? Absolutely, absolutely, for sure. And, uh, you know, you know the, 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 there was a consortium of, of religious leaders who cared deeply about civil rights, uh, Joe Roberts, Timothy McDonald, I, I could just go on and on, uh, Gerald Durley, uh, some of us are still alive, but there, there was just a shared concern for the well-being of all people, not just some people. And uh, the, the commitment to do justice and love mercy and not be puffed up about it, as the prophet Micah suggested. You know, we, we didn't ever pat ourselves on the back. I, I, just a, a shout out to the Community Foundation that Alicia Phillip was head of it, she got a grant to uh, start something called Higher Ground. At my retirement, Pleman and Dr. Roberts and Alvin Sugarman spoke, and the week after, Alicia called and said, you all need to go on the road. Uh, you know, four religious leaders who are friends, and for, for years, like four or five years, we had we we went all over Metro Atlanta. I remember uh, the four of us. We would, we were a panel and we would talk about issues from our different perspectives, and we didn't always agree on everything. I remember Alvin and I got into a big argument about the sovereignty of God, whether God was in charge of everything or not. <laughs> Alvin said, Alvin said, you know, listen, God. The creator put us on this earth and said, okay, it's all in your hands now. You better do right. And, you know, here I am, this Presbyterian, all about the problem. Anyway, uh, it was it was friendship and relationship and shared values that came naturally. We didn't, none of us started thinking, oh, we need to be an interfaith and found, found a, start an organization. It's about who we were. Um, one of the reasons I think it's fair to say that social justice, racial equality, um, seeing the wrongs that people have done in the name of race uh, m is important to you is because of where you grew up. Uh, you, were, uh, you were in, what, Meridian, Mississippi. That's you right, were not Meridian, far Mississippi. Not far from Philadelphia, Mississippi. Um, not which far where it's, from Philadelphia. Tell us about that. Well, in in our church, which was you know the biggest Methodist church in town, not a word was ever said about Emmett Till's death, and nothing was ever said about what happened in Philadelphia. It was it it was goddess in heaven and all that matters is your your relationship, your personal relationship, and your own salvation and your prayer life and that sort of thing. And um, you know, I certainly wasn't in any way a rabble rouser at the time, but I don't know. I I don't know 
I just always had a feeling that things weren't right. But no, it was, you know, the, the atmosphere, the weather, the moral weather was, um, it was like being in a different world. Yeah. Um, the, um, so, so I'm going to keep coming back, if you don't mind, to your earliest roots, uh, because I'm, I'm really fascinated by how religion, prayer, uh, a, a love of God develops in people. But in addition to loving God as a younger person, there was somebody else you were quite enamored with, Annie Oakley. <laughs> how did you just, dis- <laughs> what was it about the sharpshooter, Annie Oakley, that you found so fascinating. <laughs> to this day in, in my study, I have a huge <clears throat> poster of Annie Oakley. And it's a, it's a sketch of her, and she's wearing a cowgirl outfit, and she's holding a, a rifle, that, and the title of the poster is Annie Oakley, Peerless Lady Wingshot. And she just seemed like a strong person who knew what to do and wasn't afraid to do it. And she's been a role model for me. Uh, I mean, I, 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 actually, I named my first dog Miss Annie after Annie Oakley. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you said, and I, I think used that to have you a sort- cowgirl skirt outfit. You know, it was about empowerment of women and i didn't even know that at the time i didn't know that's what it was about but good lord uh you know women weren't empowered and you know and in the ways that we can be ourselves now and yet there was always something in me that um knew that I just couldn't, and I love, I've been married 57 years, and I have two wonderful children, uh, but that's not all I was created to do or be. Um, I think you've said, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there are times when Annie Oakley inspired you when you were thinking about the sermons you wanted to write. You knew you had to take aim, hit the target, do it efficiently. Exactly. I wanted to be peerless in delivering the word so that it hit home. And, you know, there are all kinds of things that God preaches, but what has always guided me, I wanted to touch people's real hearts and minds so that something good could happen inside them. I wanted to give that gift of of hope, of of the reality of of God's eternal love. I just had to do it. It was my gift, not my gift, God's gift to give through me. Peerless well, Lady Wingshot. Apparently it worked because I think that you went through these obstacles in which uh, churches, when they first talked with you, they were they were they were members of the congregation. So we don't want a woman running, you know, as the pastor of our church. But in every church, I believe that you have served as pastor. You have doubled the size of the congregation. So you must have been doing something right. That is correct. And then certainly in the beginning, when I first started out at Central Presbyterian Church in the late seventies. In the meeting where they talked about whether they were going to call me or not, someone stood up and said, well, is she of the childbearing age? You know, 
horrors than horrors that the ministers, you know, anyway, that's where we started. Um, okay, so I, I want to, let's go back to talking about God. You believe that God can, will give us what you would call unconditional love, no matter the Correct. circumstance. Correct. Talk about that. Be, talk about that. Well, I guess the you know the the word that comes to mind, you know, use the word unconditional love, uh, which I think is a factor of of the grace of God, and that regardless of whether we're creeps or not, and all of us are a mix of creepiness and non creepiness. Um, We cannot prove our own worth or earn God's favor. And there's nothing we can do to stop the flow of God's love and grace. You know, even on the cross, the criminal next to Jesus, Jesus said, I'll see you in paradise, sir. And he was the guilty one. But okay, we got to get to a break. But when I hear okay. that, I, it sounds to me like before we go to break, um, it, you're suggesting that no matter my behavior, I'm going to end up in paradise. I can end up in paradise, and it seems to me that frees me up to be as awful a person as I, I want to be. I will still have God's grace and unconditional love. That seems like a paradox. Well, it it certainly is a. Uh is a a mental conundrum and a theological conundrum. Do I have time to answer it now or do you need to go to the break now? Let's let's take a break. I do want to hear your answer when we come back on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. On Political Rewind today, we're talking to the Reverend Dr. Joanna Adams, uh, who is one of the most highly respected and beloved uh, 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 pastors, uh, now retired from the Presbyterian Church in Georgia. Um, And she's part of our series of conversations with thought leaders that will go on throughout 2023. Um, Before we uh, got to the break, Joanna, I wanted to, I asked you if I get unconditional love from God, what's the incentive to behave well if I'm going to end up someday uh, in paradise? The unconditional love of God the and in and, and Protestant tradition and that that I come from, there's uh, irresistible grace and unconditional love. So the power in the universe comes from uh, divine grace and divine love. 
And if I can uh, be open to receiving God's love and unconditional grace, even if I've really messed up and continue to mess up, uh, I want to respond by living a grateful and faithful life. That's the that's where the power comes from. Uh, and and you know, I I, I remember a wonderful theologian uh, being asked uh, whether she, the theologian, thought that a lot of people were going to hell. And she answered, listen, sir, I'm only a professor at Harvard Divinity School. I'm going to leave people's eternal destiny up to God. I'm not keeping count. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Uh, um, you, you I said, do too. You said a little while ago that uh, that you were you had the calling to help uh, fill people's lives with an understanding of grace of the Holy Spirit. You wanted to inspire them to love for to a love of God, uh, and it strikes me that one of the most I've always thought. One of the most powerful things about being a uh, a faith leader, a, a pastor of a church, a rabbi, uh, an imam, is you are present for people's most joyous moments and also their greatest sorrows. You're there for the baptism of a new baby. You're there for the life cycle changes, the 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 marriage. Um, and then you're there for the funeral. And I've always thought that that must bring your life into such a sharp focus in so many ways. Well, it, it, it certainly does. Uh, I remember when I was doing chaplaincy work in seminary as part of my training, I was on the neurosurgery floor at Georgia Baptist Hospital was my assignment. And there was a young woman on our floor who had terminal brain cancer, was close to death. And I remember standing outside the door of her room with my hand prepared to knock. And I, I just about had a panic attack. I thought, what in the world am I doing here in the face of this wonderful young woman's imminent <laughs> death? What can I say? What use am I? And I thought, well, I can't answer that question. But my choice is either to take the plunge or walk away. And I put my hand on the door and went in and realized that God had given me from another realm the strength and the, the kind of soothing presence that really does come from another realm. And I, I just trust that, that if God wants me to keep doing this work, 
and I and I actually, you know, you talked about weddings and and baptisms. I adore them, but I will say, spiritually, for me, the most meaningful experiences have to do with loss and death, and that's of such a privilege. And I learned so much from people in terms of their own courage, their own resources uh, to, to be able to say goodbye, to handle pain, to handle loss with such grace and dignity. I, I wouldn't do anything else in this life because of the what, what is that? I apologize again for interrupting. What has what no. have those experiences taught you about reflecting upon the fact that you'll eventually die? I will say that I don't, you know, I don't reflect on that a lot. I had I had a great privilege. I mean, this is the truth, for goodness' sake. Uh, but I had the great privilege some years ago of serving on a on a committee which doesn't sound like a blessing, which wrote a, <laughs> a, a, a creed for the Presbyterian Church. And and it's one of our creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, you know, it is, it's now in our Book of Confessions. And it begins with a line from a confession written in the 1600s, at the beginning of the Reformation. In life and in death, we belong to God. I bet my life, Bill, on the reality of that. And I, I can't tell you that what I believe I can prove. I absolutely cannot prove anything except that I have experienced as I have lived the grace and love and redemptive power of grace and love. And I just can't imagine I really think about this. I can't imagine that the creator who made us and gave us life on this earth and filled it with so much beauty and so many blessings along with the thorns and the heartaches that God would say, okay, you're dead, you're gone. I just don't think God ever intended to be finished with us. Mm. Does that mean there's a heaven? Oh, I definitely believe there's a world beyond this. I'm, I'm not a reality beyond this. And I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a medievalist that, and, uh, you know, that, that there's a heaven above and hell below. But I really do that God's infinite love includes us, even though we are mortal and finite. I really do believe uh, this world is the beginning and not the end. I think Emily Dickinson wrote that. Uh, this world is the beginning and not the end. And is that the sort of thing you talked about the experience of going in to see this young woman and being fearful that you didn't know how you would talk to her as she was dying? Um, is that the sort of thing you talk about to uh, someone who is close to death? What I just talked to you about, yes. Yeah. But I'm, I, I want to get, I want to be with 
whoever it is I've been called to walk beside and to see what that particular person needs at that particular moment. And, you know, so the the patient or the, the, the one with the problem or this issue that is my teacher, really, they tell me what I need. And I certainly don't preach. Uh, but I'm a the 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 ministry of presence is like 99% of ministry showing up, shutting up <laughs> and listening. Uh, well, I want to talk about showing up uh, and the notion of shutting up in, in another context with you. Um, I read a, uh, again, I, something you either wrote or gave in a sermon, uh, in, in which you talk about, I think the question was, should there be a clock in a sanctuary? <laughs> a, <laughs> clock, a, clock that, a clock that the pastor, that the preacher would see That's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> from wherever they were preaching. And in that piece, you talk about the fact that uh, everybody's watching the clock in one way or another when they're sitting in church. And you believe very strongly that people came into church, I think, believing, let's do an hour and get out of here, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And behind that is a, is a joke that, uh, you know, about the, about the preacher who <laughs> uh, had timed, he put little um, candies in his mouth and, and he had timed the disappearance of them uh, down to a, a an art so that he knew just when to quit preaching as these things melted in his mouth. And one day it was, he, he didn't let the congregation out till 1225. And one of his elders complained about it at the door of the sanctuary. And he said, I have to apologize. The minister did. I had, I had, uh, I had one Altoid in my mouth and one button. And the Altoid disappeared, but the button never dissolved. So. <laughs> all right. That so, made me so, go on and on. <laughs> all right. So you, I have to say, having prepared for this show by reading a number of your sermons, you are a just a marvelous writer, an efficient writer. An ex your writing is so smart, and and you have such a unique take uh, as you write your sermons. But part of that is probably because you are so aware of the time frame in which you need. You're Annie Oakley. I need to hit the target and gallop on. Right, and and I, you know I will say you know I edit myself and edit myself and still preach too long. Uh, but, oh, I will hear a good sermon and I'll, you know, Alan, I will leave the church sanctuary and that was such a good sermon. If I could have just cut out so much of it, because we talk and then we talk more and then we talk say too much, um, that the, should there be a clock in the sanctuary really has to do with my responsibility of knowing what time it is in the life of a congregation, in the life of a city, 
what time is it? And, you know, and that a wonderful theologian that from Canada that I love told the story of, of once of, of how it was that throughout the history of Christianity, in any era in history, you could say anything. There, you know, there are millions of words and billions of doctrines and all of that. And he said, the Christian church in Germany in the 1930s had one thing to say, and it, the, it was time to say it. And there was never a time where it was more important than to say this. Jesus was a Jew. Oh. That's what I'm mean about knowing what time it is. Well, it, and you know what? I want to get our final break of the show out of the way. But but what you just said leads me into what I think we, we could talk about when we come back, and that is, what time is it right now, Joanna Adams, given mm. the turmoil mm. turmoil in our politics, uh, given the anger and rage that so many people experience uh, right now? Um, what time is it for the church, for the synagogue, for the mosque? We'll do that when we come back on Political Rewind. Joanne Adams, most of the um, the polling, the surveys, the anecdotal evidence is that church attendance, synagogue attendance, younger people, are, are, I, I think, are not getting involved uh, with organized religion in quite the way that they used to. And in, in much the same way that you talk about in Germany uh, in, in the 30s, uh, the churches should have preached Jesus was a Jew. It strikes me that in many ways this is a time that that our faith our faith is more important than ever. Um, t- tell us what you think. Uh, you as a, a minister uh, should be paying attention to as you look at what time it is in our country. I would I would say that. The irrelevance of so much of what faith communities claim to be about, uh, that that's real. And sometimes Alan and I will visit a church, and honestly, I have one of these radars in me where I can tell there's, 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 a, there's a, a spirit in this place is good, or I feel like I'm in a mausoleum, and you know, people are just going through the motions and they're so interdirected you know they're they're arguing about silly things that don't make a bit of difference in the world um so i think it's the church's fault in a lot of ways uh, i think institutional religion and particularly uh mainline protestantism of which i'm you know a total member i think we sort of lost our way uh, and started trying to please people and offering uh, religion light, L-I-T-E. And 
it's there's so much of mainline religion is not gripping at all. Um, and I, I, I think the timidity of the clergy has a lot to do with that. Mm. Um, uh, you know, you use the word, you talked about polarization. Uh, to me, uh, you know, I've served different kinds of churches. The church that I think is the most important today would be, if you want to mix politics in here, <laughs> would be a purple church, a purple congregation, where people who are Republican, where people who are Democrat, we can come together for one reason. God is one, and we're here to worship God and to find out what God wants us to do in this world. And where can we find places where we agree and can join hands? I'm just thinking of two or three uh, things that have grown out of faith communities that uh, you know involve all kinds of people. And that's what we have to do. We have to do that. Uh, the, the issues that I think are the most pressing in our modern time, this polarization that you talk about and our tendency to demonize others is terrible and not from God. And I'll be sitting at a dinner table with, you know, loving progressive liberals and there'll be people be talking ugly about people as, you know, what, what's good about that? Once you've demonized somebody, you've taken away their humanity, you don't see it. And you're never gonna have a good country in that way. In the, the climate change, I, I don't know why the faith community in, in leaving the parade, and it, it, rather than being the caboose on the train, pardon my mixing my metaphors, but for God's <laughs> sake, God created this world and entrusted it to our care. And we, are, we have blown that. And if we don't watch it, we, there won't be generations and generations to come for flora or fauna or little boys and little girls. And the, the last thing I just, uh, you know, I cannot believe that we are a society in which we're shooting the guts out of one another by the dozens every day. I, I, after the shooting in Texas of school children, you know, I, I, I watched something that showed when a bullet entered a little boy, a little eight-year-old boy's chest, what an AR rifle bullet did to his to his body like where are we what have we done if there is a hell people who don't give a hoot about gun violence and gun safety are candidates That's and I, I'm, I'm I'm Miss Annie Oakley I, I myself have a a shotgun to shoot skeet because I, I like I like shooting skeet. <laughs> but we are we are we are in a terrible mess. Uh, and that 
I don't know why that isn't on the front burner. I will I will give a shout out to the temple and to St. Luke's Episcopal Church, the Ebenezer Baptist Church. Uh, interfaith coalition is gathering now around gun violence. And I, I have to say, I, 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 I called one of our Presbyterian executives a year or so ago and said, what are the Presbyterian churches doing about gun violence? And that executive said, nothing as far as I know. Mm. Mm. Do you feel like having been retired for a while, you're missing an opportunity to be back engaged in it with a congregation in that work? I, I personally do. I'm, I'm in this interfaith thing. I'm also quite aware of what a touchy subject it is. But, I'm, yeah. you know, when you're retired, you know, I don't give much of a hoot about touchiness anymore. You know, <laughs> I, we're we're almost out of time. I am going to ask you another. I, I started asking you this. And it's kind of the last thing I'll get to ask, and I don't have a lot of time to to hear what I want to hear. Joanna, I find I find praying really difficult. I partly because I don't know about God, but also I close my eyes, I try to start a conversation, and it just never goes anywhere. Give me a couple quick tips. What do I need to be doing? Well, you need to stop relying on yourself. For one thing, get the Jewish prayer book, for God's sake. You know, uh, the, the, there are a lot of psalms. You could read a psalm a day and sit there and think and then say amen. Uh, you know, prayer is prayer is not a work. It's, uh, you know, it's an acknowledgement that there's something beyond ourselves oh. that's good. Joanne Adams, I could not ask for a better way for us to conclude our conversation. I, you are one of the great treasures of our community, and I'm so pleased that we could spend the last hour uh, discussing all of the things that you talked about. Um, thank you so much for being with us today, Joanna. That's all the time we have left for today's Political Rewind. We'll be back again tomorrow with another brand new show. We're going to talk about the tumultuous 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago with an author who says that the events that took place on the streets and in the convention hall changed forever how media reports on live breaking news. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and be good to one another. See you tomorrow.